seems to me there's a whole lot of confusion out there if you ask people what they think of the Christian faith. Imagine you go into town on Saturday afternoon and you ask the various people in Oxford to play the word association game to the word Christian. So you speak to locals, you speak to tourists, you speak to students, you speak to shopkeepers, you speak to those who are just in Oxford for the day and those who have been here for decades and hundreds of years. What would they say when you say the word Christian? I'm sure there would be some negative responses. Hypocrites. Outdated. Clueless, intolerant, naive, boring, infighting, do-gooders. I'm sure there'd be some fairly neutral responses as well, the kind of church, Bible, prayer. Then there'd be perhaps some positive responses. Loyal, kind, forgiving, gracious. Perhaps folk who who have known Christians or who know Christians. It's our experience here in East Oxford that people who have come through this building, particularly because of buttercups and sunflowers, are very warm, at least towards us. It's mixed when you ask your friends what they think of when they think of Christian. People have different baggages, different ideas, different experiences. And yet at the start of Mark's Gospel, 1 verse 1, he cuts straight in and tells us what we should think about when we think of the word Christian. Or Christianity. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah. So Mark says, think Christian, think good news. The message of Jesus is the message of good news. And it's such good news. It's my hope as we plod through Mark for the next ten months or so, we will see that good news come alive. Perhaps for the first time, perhaps for the hundredth time. But that we will grasp again onto the gospel. And yet when someone comes and tells you they've got good news, you're cynical, we all are. We don't trust people. And so we say to Mark, prove it. Why does what Jesus say about life matter? Why does it actually count? It's a good question, isn't it? There are lots of voices out there. Lots of people saying all kinds of things to us, all kinds of the time. Buy this and you'll be happy. Join this club and you'll be fulfilled. Wear these clothes, get this haircut. And you will have the, health, the self-esteem that you've dreamt of. Eat this food, it will bring you joy. Follow me, things will be alright. And, and we've grown pretty cynical. We've tried some of the stuff they're pushing. We found it doesn't work. And so we just crash on the way we are. Why do we listen to Mark? Why is Mark worth pinning our ears back? Why bother? Well, firstly, we're going to think about what he says about Jesus. And then we'll think about why we should listen. So what does he say about Jesus? Well, verse 1. The message of Jesus is good news. Who is it about? It's about Jesus the Messiah, which means Jesus the King. God's King. God's King, the one they've been waiting for. For hundreds of years. That's why it's good news, because he's here at last. He's arrived. Do you see, the Old Testament was God's authoritative word. Not just stuff dreamt up by people, but God's authoritative word. But it was incomplete. 
You reach the end and you're left waiting. You're waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled. Waiting for something more. These prophecies, these signposts, all stretching forward and we reach the end and we're still waiting. We're waiting for a man. We're waiting for a king who's going to come and change the world. And Mark says, he's here. He's arrived. God's king is here. As we study Mark over the next few months, I remember when I first was taught Mark many moons ago, um, the person teaching said there are three questions that you can ask in Mark and three questions that you ought to ask. Um, Three aspects that kind of interweave through the whole gospel. The first one is who is Jesus? What does this passage tell us about who Jesus is, his identity? The second question is, is what did he come to do? What's his life for? And then thirdly, what should my response be to him? So who is Jesus? What did he come to do? And what should my response be to him? Those three things, if if you're kind of lost in Mark, ask one of those questions, all three of those questions, and you'll be helped. And rule of thumb, first half is who is Jesus? Chapters 1 to 8. Second half, 8 to 16, what did he come to do? And right the way through, there's our response. It's not quite as simple as that. You do get what did he come to do in the first half, and you do get who is he in the second half. But rule of thumb, who is Jesus? What did he come to do? And then our response goes right the way through. And what Mark seems to do as we begin the Gospel is he he gives us a massive taster of what's to come. He leaves us wanting more. He launches the Gospel with a whole load of themes in these verses that he will pick up later as the weeks go by. So who is Jesus? He is the Messiah, our translation says. At the bottom, the Christ. He is God's King. The one they've been waiting for. The one they've been longing for. But what's he come to do? Now, a couple of big clues, and then those are there in verse 2 and 3, and it's a slightly weird bit. What is Jesus' mission? Well, you might miss it if you're not a Jew who knows their scriptures well. But the quotes that he uses tell us the kind of king that Jesus will be. Let me read them again. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. Now, what Mark does, and there have been gallons of ink spills over this, but he, he splices together two Old Testament prophecies into one. You can see that at the bottom with the little footnotes. You've got one from Malachi chapter 3, do you see? And one from Isaiah 40. And pulls them together to talk about John the Baptist. Someone who's going to come and prepare the paths for the Lord. People say the Queen gets used to the smell of wet paint. Because wherever she goes, people are preparing for her and making the place look nice. So John the Baptist is here to prepare the paths for the Lord. And the way Mark shows us how he does that is he pulls together Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah 40 verse 3. And this is a slightly technical bit, so see if you can stick with me. I think it helps us as we understand the Gospel as a whole as to what kind of Jesus he's going to be. So in Malachi... If you read the context there, God is coming to judge his people. Okay, In Isaiah 40, 
God is coming to rescue his people. It's a passage of hope, a passage of joy, a passage of the future being sorted. So who is God's king who's going to come? He's going to be a king who's going to come and judge, and a king who's going to come and rescue. And you see that in Mark. You get to chapter 11 and you see Jesus up against the Jewish religious bigwigs. He's coming to judge them. He's challenging them, challenging their authority. God's king is going to come and judge his people. Or he's going to rescue. We'll see that week on week on week. People are healed, demons are thrown out, sins are forgiven. Jesus comes to save and to rescue. God's king is coming to put a broken world back together again. So just in verses 2 and 3, you see, in kind of macroscopic version of what Jesus is going to do, he's going to be the king, he's going to come and judge, Malachi, verse 2. And the king is going to come and rescue Isaiah 40, there in verse 3. That is the kind of king he's going to be. He's going to come and put a broken world back together. To bring justice and to bring a rescue. There's a big call from Mark. He's making big claims, isn't he? Why do we trust him? Why ought we trust him? Three reasons. And we've seen it already. Verse 2 and 3, the scriptures point to him. You see, we should listen to what Mark said about Jesus because we've been expecting him in the scriptures. Or at least we've been expecting John the Baptist. He's the advanced party. Remember, at this point, it's 400 years of silence. 400 years of nothing. Of waiting. Waiting, waiting. And, and you can imagine, the longer the time goes on, the less expectant you become, the, the harder it is to believe the reality of the day to come. It looks as if God has abandoned his people. Maybe he's forgotten them. Maybe that's it. The Romans are taking control of the land. They seem invincible. They, the situation seems impossible. Maybe God's forgotten them. And then this man walks onto the stage. And things are a bit hopeful. Because here comes this guy, John the Baptist. And John was going to get things ready. So the scriptures point to him and John is waiting for him. So see what John says in verse 7 and 8 as he turns up at the Jordan. This was John's message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. And we think, who's been advising John on his fashion sense? What is he doing? He's wearing... He's wearing what? Clothing made of camel's hair a leather belt round his waist and he eats locusts. And Why are so many people coming to listen to a guy who dresses like that? Isn't that a bit unusual? People are, are hanging on his every word. Normally people like that are the kind of people you cross the road for. You've lived in Oxford for a while and you may see some folk like that. Why is John looking like this and eating like this? Why does Mark include it for us? What does it bring to the text? 
I take it he's doing it deliberately because he's wanting us to see that John the Baptist is like Elijah. And if you scurry back into the Old Testament, you will see Elijah dresses just like that too. And what's Elijah got to do with it all? Well, that's where Malachi is helpful. So, Malachi is the last book, at least in the way our Bibles work in the Old Testament. And the very last verses say this. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. You see, it ends with us waiting for an Elijah figure. And the Elijah figure is going to come before God comes to town. And that's why everybody is crowding around. That's why they've come from all around the countryside to come and see him. He's on the front page of every newspaper. Is this the Elijah figure we've been waiting for? Is this the end of the 400 years of silence? And where does he set out his store? River Jordan. Which again, we might miss it, but the Jordan to them, that was where they entered the promised land for the first time. That was where God rescued from Egypt, gave them the land he promised to Abraham, and in they come through the Jordan. Could it be that God is going to do a similar kind of rescue again? Is he going to come and get rid of their oppressors again, perhaps the Romans this time, to deal with the enemies of God again? John's at the Jordan. And what's he doing? Well, I guess it's easy to work out what he's doing because of his name. It's a bit like Postman Pat. You know what Postman Pat does because the clue is in the question. So what does John the Baptist do? He, he doesn't go to a Baptist church. He baptises people. John is a baptiser. What's baptism? Well, in this sense, it was ritual purification. It was a fairly common thing at the time, but it was common for Gentiles. Common for people outside of the people of God as they wanted to come into the people of God. Come into the Jewish family, perhaps. A way of them being included and cleansed. Brought into the people. To, to get rid of their Gentile-likeness. But what's happening here? It's everyone. It's not just Gentiles, it's everyone. That would be Jews too. They're all getting ready for the king. Remember why he's coming? He's coming to the Malachi, coming to judge. Isaiah coming to rescue. And for that kind of a king, so you need repentance. It's not just saying you've trusted God, it's turning to him. Living differently. Honestly, it might be here that you're here this evening and and you've never trusted this king for yourself. Perhaps you've always gone to church, perhaps that's what you do, what your family does. But you've never really yourself decided to trust him and follow him. I'd love to urge you to do that tonight. I can't promise that we'll baptise you, although we've got something under here. But here's the opportunity to, to follow this Jesus for yourself. To repent and to trust him. Maybe you're here and you've been a Christian for years. 
it seems to me that repentance isn't just a once and for all thing, it's a daily thing as well. Daily we find ourselves at the cross again, daily we're aware of our sin, daily we realise we've not lived the kind of life that he's called his children to live. Daily we repent, a daily discipline, coming before the cross, saying sorry for the things that we've done and said and thought, repenting. Because you see, big, big picture, the big picture is 2014, we're not waiting for Jesus to come for the first time, as they were. We're waiting, but the logic of the Bible is we are waiting for him to come again. You see, God had promised his king to them, and he arrived. It took 400 years, and God has promised his king for us. And he will arrive. We don't know when. But the logic of the New Testament is Jesus will come back. One of the privileges of living in this part of Oxford is if ever you want to go into town, you can cycle along the river. And it's beautiful. If you haven't done it, I'd recommend it thoroughly. You see wildlife and barges and rowers and all that kind of stuff. You can go pretty quick. Problem is, it's not particularly wide. Sometimes it gets quite narrow. Sometimes there are kind of blind corners and bushes that overhang and, and you ring your bell, perhaps if there's a blind corner, you're not quite sure he's coming. Press the, the bell and it means, I'm coming, careful, watch out, here I come. What can't happen is someone comes the other way and says, well, that's alright for you, but I'm not really a, uh, the track is quite narrow here kind of person. That's okay for you and your truth. I don't really hold that truth myself. If that's how you view reality coming this way, that's fine. I view reality in a different way from this side. I'm going to ignore you. It doesn't work. And that's just like the logic of the New Testament with Jesus coming back. The warning is that Jesus is coming back. The King will return. It doesn't work as that doesn't sort of fit for me in my reality thing. The reality is he is coming back. And so repentance is key. And so they poured and they swarmed around John from all around the place. But we are never in any doubt that Jesus is the main event and not John. Verse 8, I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. Or verse 7, after me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. He can't even do his laces for him. And his baptism is on a different scale altogether. Jesus will baptise with the Holy Spirit, which again, if you're God's people and you're thinking he's forgotten us, suddenly you start to get excited. And your heart begins to race because you know your Old Testament promises of God pouring out his Spirit on his people, so they can have, have new hearts, they can keep his laws. And so the stage is set for God's king. John's job is done. John is getting stuff ready, people are repenting and being baptised. And it's dot, dot, dot. I love John the Baptist, but I find him incredibly challenging. 
find him challenging because he pushes my pride. He prods at it. Because John is the example for the Christian. The one who points others to Jesus. Do you see that? He always points away from himself. And he always points to Christ. Paul said of his own ministry, we don't preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. So I take it it's a tricky question on the way past. It's not the main point of the passage at all, but but John is a great model for the believer. Who are our Christian lives drawing attention to? Who are our lives about? Maybe you've been a Christian for decades, maybe you've been a Christian for days. But our natural tendency is to always draw the attention onto ourselves. And yet John pushes away from himself to Jesus. It's a hard thing for someone like me, who has the privilege of standing up in front of people and teaching the Bible. But it's my genuine prayer, each time I preach, that you won't remember me at all. But you remember Christ. Because he is what it's all about. That you will be captivated by him, that you will love him, that I will be John the Baptist, pointing you to him. Because he is the main event. So why listen to the king? Scriptures point to him. John the Baptist, we've seen, is waiting for him. Thirdly and finally, God announces him. And there's something of a fanfare as God does this, but there is no fanfare. There's no red carpet. God says, this is my son, whom I love with you. I'm well pleased. And we're thinking, really? Really, verse 9, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. You're thinking, Galilee, he's a northerner. Places full of traitors, half-hearted Jews who had intermingled. Nazareth, it's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. It's not exactly a great start if you're going to be God's king. Is that genuinely the way things are going to work out? And he ambles onto the scene and waits in line with everybody else and gets baptised. You're thinking, is he sinful? Does he need baptising? Is this genuinely God's king? Why is he being baptised? I think the answer is, is he's aligning himself with his people. He's showing that he's one of us. He's showing that he's able to represent us. Which is why at the end of the gospel you will see him dying for the sins of his people. And it might be a slight damp squib of an announcement There may be no red carpets. But actually we see God the Father is very pleased. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. Just on the way past the Trinity, we spot it, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. The Father is speaking, the Son is, his ministry is about to begin and the Spirit is confirming and strengthening the Son for the ministry that the Father sent him for. And whenever God speaks like that, which is very unusual in the Bible, I think we need to listen and think why. You'll get it again later in chapter 8. But it is the equivalent of flashing neon lights in what is going on here. Why is God the Father getting our attention. 
And so the king is here. And so his kingdom is here. And so we will just sneak over into next week and see verse 15. What is the message that the king brings? The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And yet you see, if that's the message that he brings, that seems like a pretty good start. But what are 12 and 13 doing? Where do verse 12 and verse 13 come from? If he's going to be God's, remember, judging, rescuing king, if he's going to bring good news, what's he doing in the wilderness? Why is the Spirit sending him into the wilderness? Why is Satan able to tempt him? That's not how it's supposed to go. That's not how we would write the story. I wonder if we just get a glimpse of the kind of king he's going to be. The kind of rescue he's going to perform. Do you see, God's real problem is not the Romans. God's real problem are not earthly kingdoms. The real problem, the real problem is sin and Satan. And so at the very beginning of the Gospel, you see just a glimpse of the kind of thing he's going to do. That is why he came. That is why this king ends up wearing a crown of thorns and dying on a cross. At the beginning of the Gospel, we see Jesus, God's King, the Christ, the Messiah. And we just get a glimpse that he's going to deal with spiritual forces. He's going to deal with Satan. He's going to deal with sin. Which is why his message is such good news. Which is why we need to listen.